This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Angela Bookdahl, the senior rabbi at Central Synagogue in New York City, the first Asian American to be ordained as a rabbi. Rabbi Bookdahl is also a cantor, as people, both Jews and Gentiles, have come for a long time from all around the world to hear her magnificent Jewish chanting and singing. Under Rabbi Bookdahl's inspiring leadership, she has single-handedly countered one of the most significant sociological trends in American Jewish life and has expanded the membership of her Reformed Jewish synagogue to such an extent that there is a waiting list to join and post-bar mitzvah retention is literally off the charts. When one thinks about what the future of institutional Reform Judaism can be, the great role model is today's guest on The Rabbi's Husband, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Rabbi, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Wow, that's nice. You could be my PR. Thank you. Well, these are all facts, which I think everyone in the New York Jewish community knows. So uh, more people should. And I love your chosen passage. It's just one of the greats. And it's uh, Deuteronomy 29, 9 through 11, with, of course, commentary subsequently in, in the passages that follow. So tell us what happens in this passage and why is it so significant to you? I love this passage. So it begins, You stand this day, all of you, imagine them basically at Sinai, affirming their covenant before the Lord your God. And then it goes out to list those who are included, your tribal heads, your elders and officials, all the men of Israel, your children, wives, even the stranger within your camp. And then they add from the wood chopper to the water drawer. So I guess the first thing I have to say about this passage, why it is, uh, you know, maybe one of the first that came to my mind when you asked me, is it happened to be the Parsha when I was installed as the senior rabbi of Central. Now, we picked that date without my knowing what the Torah portion was. I wasn't picking it for that, but it was Beshert. And I think of it as, you know, here I was being installed as the first woman to lead this community in its 175-year history. At the time, there were only a handful of women who were leading large congregations. And I was now a woman leading the largest congregation in New York. And I think as a woman who uh, grew up with a non-Jewish mother, as an Asian American, I spent a lot of my Jewish life feeling like I wasn't sure that I also was really standing at Sinai like everybody else. Like this text says, you are all there. And it says that it belongs to all of us. And I think that coming from also a small Jewish community, unlike my kids who live in New York and go to a Jewish day school, I didn't really know Hebrew very well. I didn't have a lot of knowledge. And I wondered if this Torah was mine to own. And part of what I loved about this passage is it says we were all there and it includes everyone. It really does. And when I say that, I mean, we often think that Judaism, you know, is going to be run by our leaders, but it says it's our leaders, but also the water chopper and water drawer, our laborers, people in every profession have something to bring. Everyone brings what they have. So it's very inclusive in terms of like, you know, educational level and leadership level and class. 
And then it says young and old, like oftentimes either like it feels like things are being run by the next generation, like we're only looking to the future, or it's like, just listen to your elders. But here it includes, no, it's young and old. And I have to tell you, so often we feel like this tradition is written by and for men, but it makes a point of naming that women are there. And then it says the gear. Now the gear is translated either as the stranger or the convert in our tradition. And either way, I think that's such a powerful statement. So anyone who says, well, I don't know if I can be 100% Jewish because, you know, I didn't grow up with all this history. I don't have Jewish ancestry. This text is saying, if you convert to Judaism, you were at Sinai also. And that was in Maimonides' letter to Obadiah the convert, where he said, the, the convert said, am I allowed to say the God of my forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And Maimonides said, not only are you allowed to, you are required to. Right. Absolutely. And there's even a sense, if you translate Ger as the stranger, even someone who hasn't converted, the fact is my synagogue, for example, and many synagogues, especially reform synagogues, have a lot of Jewish adjacent folks, people who are married to Jews, who love them, who are raising Jewish children, who are a part of this. And it's even saying you're there too. We couldn't do this without you being present. And so this sense of inclusion is very powerful. And the fact that it names all of them, kulchem, all of you, for a woman who grew up feeling that like I wasn't sure that I was included, to basically stand up there with that Torah portion as my guide and stand before a community where I was now leading this community saying, I was there just with all of you was an incredibly powerful thing. So this, this to me is a statement of um, who we are as a people. And, and then the last thing I would just say is what our foundation of our identity is, that our identity is not founded on being a leader or a donor or uh, even a born Jew, but it is saying that if you want to commit to this covenant, you're a part of our people. You're a part of the family, 100%. That's right. And, and all of you is, it could be extraneous because the passage could have read, you are standing today before Hashem, but all of you is put in there with great intentionality. Absolutely. As we know, no, no word is extraneous, right? So absolutely. There's so many beautiful things in this, this short passage, but I think one of the most beautiful parts is from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water, because then we ask, as Rabbi David Kasher has asked, who are those people? Well, who's the woodchopper? The woodchopper is probably the guy in Deuteronomy 19.5 who takes the axe to chop the wood. The handle falls off, kills the guy. He becomes a manslaughterer and goes to the city of refuge. And then who's the, the water drawer? That's Rebecca. She's the one who drew the water in Genesis and distinguished herself for her great kindness and thus made her exactly the woman that Abraham's servant wanted to be effectively the mother of the Jewish people. So from the refugee, the manslaughterer, to if we had royalty, Rebecca would be the queen. To Rebecca. There we go. Well, that's beautiful Torah there, Mark. Thank you for adding that perspective. I love that. I've always thought of it as like that it didn't matter if you had uh, you know, a laborer's job. But I, I think your interpretation is so beautiful and your drawing that it really is the extremes, you know, from the the matriarch and the queen of our people to, um, to yes, one who has to take refuge because, you know, as you said in that passage, it's beautiful. I love thinking about that. That we're all included. That's right. Everybody who wants to contribute to the Jewish people, whether you've just did a terrible mistake and have committed manslaughter, but you didn't do it intentionally and that you want to be a part to whether you're the queen, Rebecca, who we should all try to emulate. It's exactly what you said. It's all of you. I think it's so easy for us, even Jews with two Jewish parents, I'm always shocked to find how many of them feel 
that this tradition is not fully theirs, or they feel somehow like they're a fraud and a sham, or they don't fully feel authentically Jewish, maybe because they don't know Hebrew, they don't feel like they know enough. And I find that this passage both includes them, but it's followed just a few verses later by Loba Shamayim, you know, the famous verse that says, it's not in the heavens, it's not far away, it's in your mouth, Bapicha, you can do this. And I think that there's an urgent call here for Jews who want to be a part of the covenant to say, wherever, whatever step you're at, don't feel like it's only accessible to rabbis or the rabbi's husband. <laughs> it is for all of you. And you can all access it with your own life experience and wisdom, whether you are a water chopper or water drawer. Like you don't have to be the scholar and the elder or the rabbi. This is for you too. And I think that that's what I love about your podcast is that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to help people understand this Torah is for you. It's for you today. And you you can interpret this and own this. So I think it's, it's beautiful. As a rabbi, do you find that congregants, I mean, your synagogue or other synagogues, is the passage in there about it's not beyond the sea, it's not in the heavens, it's in your heart and in your mouth. Is that there because a lot of people think it is beyond the sea and is in the heavens and therefore it's inaccessible and it's kind of one of your responsibilities is to try to tell people it's in your heart and in your mouth. You can use it today. And in fact, you can understand it now and apply it this moment. 100%. It is so important that I don't know if you know, the reform movement made these passages what we read on Yom Kippur. It's not the traditional passage, but because it actually feels like the most important thing for us to remind. And we have to constantly remind people that. It's interesting talking about who feels like the foreigner. It's this sense that, you know, a generation before, and I feel badly that I'm not going to remember who who said this, it's not mine, but it's beautiful teaching, that um, a generation before our people were immigrants to America, but they were natives in Jewish life. Like even if they weren't particularly religious, you needed them. I've heard David Wolpe say that. That's right. It's David Wolpe. Thank you. And he said, but now we have all become Native Americans, uh, but we feel like immigrants in Judaism. We feel like we don't know the language. We feel like we're going to mess up and, you know, say the blessing at the wrong time. We feel like we're going to get found out in some way. And we also, even so many Jews who are so highly educated in sort of their secular realms and in their areas of expertise feel like elementary students when they walk into synagogue. And so they feel like they cannot access it. And I, I think that it's so important to remind people, no, this is this is yours. You can do it in English, but you have your own Torah to bring to this. That's right. And I, I think, you know, Rabbi David Foreman um, says the, the key to understanding any text is to first answer the question correctly, what genre is it? If you get the genre wrong, you're going to get the text wrong. And the Torah, it's not a cookbook. It's not a law book. It's certainly not a history book. It's a guidebook. And, and it says uh, later in Deuteronomy, it says it's here for your benefit. In other words, why did God give us the Torah? It's for our benefit. When? How many times in the Torah does it say, and I've given you this Torah today? Well, like when else? Would, like what other day are we talking about? It's today because the point is it's for your benefit today. You can understand that it. it's, it's completely accessible, totally comprehensible to anybody from the woodchopper to the water drawer and uh, yeah, and to all of you. Absolutely. And it is, it is something that we, we do need constant reminders of. For sure, unfortunately. It seems to be this passage teaching us about how to teach Torah in that you're standing here today in the context of the Torah and your small children are receiving Torah wisdom at the same time in the same way as your adults. Yeah, and what's interesting is oftentimes the adults learn through the children, right? I see that happening a lot. And for people who often find even intimidating to kind of get involved even in Jewish life. It's so amazing how they bring them to nursery school. And then when their kids come back with a Purim costume or with their challah every Friday, 
it's actually through their children uh, that they feel comfortable engaging in some way and it feels more accessible. So yes, their children have to be there. I think uh, for me, certain holidays didn't feel totally complete until I celebrated them with my children. And then I realized that this is all about kind of passing it to the next generation, whether they're your own born children or you're a teacher and you do it for students or grandchildren. But there is something very deep about how you own your identity and you own your knowledge when you pass it on in some way. It becomes very differently embedded. So we do Torah study here every Saturday morning and we started doing it six or so years ago. And I remember I said from this passion, like the kids have to study with the adults. So there are no children's Torah books in this house. Like we are going to do the real thing with the kids. And then, and then a few of my friends, remember Matt and Jessica Harris used to bring their brilliant daughter who was about six at the time. And Arez Clear would bring his daughter who was the same age, brilliant girl. And uh, the kids would get it. I mean, in slightly different ways than us, but I really only slightly. Like they would develop profound understandings of the Torah, not at age five, but at age six, it seemed to kick in. Six, seven, and then it's like, why do, and I remember asking, why are there like, picture books about the Torah for six-year-olds when they're clearly doing the real thing so well. I'm a fan of that. And, you know, and I think that we try to protect our children from so many of the hard things. There's a whole line of psychology. I think Bruno Bettelheim talks about this with like fairy tales that like fairy tales have like scary stuff in them and and death. And instead we've kind of raised a, a generation that we feel like we have to protect from all the things that are hard. I love that the Torah has all that stuff in there. And I love that we can expose our children to that, not just to the sweet stories of a, an ark with animals, um, which is makes for a good picture. First of all, I really commend you for doing that. And I'm sure that you've learned a lot from your kids when you do it. Oh, absolutely. As a rabbi, um, what would you say, as a reform rabbi, what would you say if someone came to you and said, uh, Rabbi Bookdale, I'm standing on one foot. I'm only going to keep two Jewish holidays. That's it. Don't convince me to do any more. I know you're going to try. I don't want to hear it. Maybe you can give me a third and that's it. What two or three do you give them? All right. I think the first one is very easy for me, which is um, Passover. And not just because it's a, I mean, it's a very beloved family ritual holiday. But if I were to sum up on one foot, what I think Judaism is all about, with apologies to to Rabbi Hillel, I would say it is love the stranger because you were the stranger in Egypt. And I think that the reenactment of our enslavement, not just saying that like our ancestors were slaves, but that in every generation, behold or of a door, we are compelled to say, no, I was a slave. If you actually carry that Jewish memory, like as if it's your memory, you cannot walk through the world in the same way. You are going to be more radically empathetic. You are going to understand the heart of a stranger in a very different way. Uh, my son is in South Korea, the son that you know. And he told me this year, he said, you know, in some ways, these were the least Jewish high holidays I've ever had. I didn't attend services for all of them. I wasn't with my family. There's almost no Jewish community here to speak of. He said, but in other ways, he said, this was my most Jewish high holidays. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, because for the first time, I really understood what it feels like to be a stranger in a strange land. He said, we talk about that as like a pivotal teaching in Torah. And at every Passover Seder, he said, but you really kind of can't fully, fully get it without actually experiencing it. And he said, and I've never understood how much the kindness of strangers matters when you feel like you are so alone. And I love that that was his understanding of the essence of what it means to be Jewish. When he said, I feel more Jewish than ever, he understood it was it was really truly understanding the heart of a stranger. So I would say Passover, we don't just talk about it, we taste our tears. We actually have to afflict ourselves with the bread of, of affliction. And with our senses are trying to create the memory 
of what it is to be a stranger. That to me is so deeply important. Uh, the other one, if I were to give one other, it might be Yom Kippur. I think because I believe both the promise and the opportunity that we can change and that we can be forgiven and that we can forgive others is so deeply needed. And I love the idea that Shuva is return because it reminds us of a fundamental Jewish principle that we're all born good and pure, which is my theological belief. I really believe that, you know, that's a distinction from Christianity in which we're born into original sin and need to be baptized from that original sin. Here, we really believe that people are born good. Things happen to us along the way that hurt us and make us fearful and make us anxious. And But there's the promise that we can always return to that original goodness and that we are urged to forgive others and to ask for forgiveness. And I I think that when you actually take stock of your life in that way and confront your mortality, which Yom Kippur forces us to do in many different ways, that when you do that, there's no way you can emerge from that crucible in a sense uh, without being a changed person if you take Yom Kippur seriously. So those would be my two. Interesting. Now, if people are born good, why is parenting so hard? Because if people were born good, it would seem to me parenting would be like, well, just keep doing what you're doing. Like, like you're good. But it seems to me like because people aren't born good, maybe they're born neutral, maybe they're because they're not born good. It seems to me that the moral instruction of parents, of teachers, of rabbis is so important and so difficult because there's so much to teach that's not natural. That's a good question. What's not natural my parenting style in general is a little sort of like, don't get too much in the way is the way I feel. And there's a lot of trust I have in my kids. And maybe it's easy to say that now because they're now they're teenagers. And I'm thinking about what they were like when they were little. And there was a lot more direction happening, I think. But I think that so much of who they are is already so much there. And I really try to kind of put the guardrails up more than I like to do too much directing. You know, um, you know, like if you think about bowling and they have those like gutter guards, you just make sure they don't fall in the gutter, but you don't want to actually like draw the line for them because I think that that's too constricting and they, and they have to be some of them, they're going to have to make their mistakes along the way. And you just want to make sure they don't like make such big mistakes that they, uh, that they're irreparable or that they do damage themselves or others. But beyond that, I really do think that the kids come around to that. And more than anything, they're watching you, what you're doing is what they're going to learn uh, more than almost anything we can say or teach them. So uh, we joke that I've been a full-time working mom, basically for all of my children's lives. So we sort of joke that my children were raised by wolves, but I think that um, they are highly moral and resilient and independent because of that. But I, but I, and I also think because I've, I have very much trusted their instincts along the way. And I know that it still took a lot of work. I know I don't mean to try to to say that. Well, it, it's such a great concept. And getting back to your point about Pesach being number one, which I totally agree with. It's so the, the question I ask is, why is it called Seder? Like this is our festival of freedom and Seder means order. So why are we calling our festival of freedom order to such an extent that we actually sing the table of contents? In what other book do we ever sing the table of contents? It's such an order. And I think one of the things it's teaching us is, is your, your bowling alley analogy is that freedom's an incredible thing. We're celebrating our festival of freedom within a construct of order. I mean, you don't throw the bowling ball across the, you know, three alleys and then say, well, I'm, I'm bowling. No, no, you're, you're misbehaving. You're not bowling. Right. There's, I, I love that. I think that there's a structure to that. And I think that, yeah, that sense that also there have to be some boundaries and responsibilities of the freedom in some way. Yeah, exactly. I remember how uh, the great uh, basketball coach, uh, John Wooden, he had the best players of his era in the 60s and 70s at UCLA. And he would begin every season with the greatest players in college by teaching them one thing. How do you tie your shoes? 
he would sit down Lou Alcindor and Gail Goodrich and the, the greatest player, Bill Walton, and say, now we're going to talk about tying our shoes at the beginning of the season. And only when you mastered that order could you be great at freedom. That's quite a statement. I love that. I also think that in Judaism, we talk a lot about collective redemption. It's not about individual redemption. It's not like individual salvation. That's that's in a different religion. We are about collective redemption. So I, I think the fact that we have an order that we do together means that whether you're a Jew in New York or in Tacoma, where I grew up, or in Israel or in Argentina or anywhere else in the world, every Jew is doing their Seder, their Seder in the same order. There's something very powerful about that sense that we're collectively doing this together from wherever we are. And I, I think that that's also a sign of the sense of collective redemption we're in this. Absolutely. And I think both horizontally and vertically. I mean, if a Jew from third century Yemen, some just time traveled into your Seder on the uh, Upper East Side, he could sit down and participate. He would know exactly what was going on. I, I believe the Seder is probably the oldest surviving religious ritual. I think that might be true. I mean, although it depends on if you think of like atonement and the way we have, you know, radically evolved that. But I think as, as a ritual as it stands, I think you're probably right. Yeah. And probably the world. There's probably no religious ritual which have more continuity than our Seder. Yes. Which is pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, if you look at old Haggadot, they actually haven't changed that much. I mean, people focus on the things that have changed, but the story is the consistency, not the changes. So, uh, well, Rabbi, thank you for such a fascinating discussion emanating from this awesome passage in uh, Deuteronomy 29. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the beginning of the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. This man saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, Everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So um, in your years as uh, such a leader of uh, American and indeed global Jewry to the point where you are now, which is you're leading one of the great synagogues of the world, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I think that every person is infinitely more powerful than they think they are. I really believe that. And I think that every human has the capacity to change, for change, for the better and also for the worse, but when we will it, that we can change for the better. I have a very optimistic view of humankind. I have to say that. And, and it, it's reflective of my theology, but I think it's rooted in Judaism, which is, which is, I think, also optimistic about humankind and our potential, even though we make tons of mistakes and I see it and I get disappointed by human beings all the time. But I fundamentally deeply believe that we can change and that the potential and our power, especially if we're willing to tap into the source of our power, which is like a humility to understand that we're not doing this by ourselves, whether we call it faith or God or being in community. But when we can tap into something outside of ourselves, we are so much more powerful and courageous and strong than we even know ourselves to be. Well, I think that's so profound. I think the, the Jewish proof of that is, is Abraham, a man who commanded no army. He had no land. He had nothing resembling any political or authoritative or state power. And yet the Abraham Accords were just signed last month. I mean, the most influential person in the history of humankind had no formal authority, but it just shows the power of one person. Yeah. And look at this. When we talk about the willingness to change, you've got someone like Sudan who basically were among the first people to declare war on Israel in 67. And we're like sworn enemies. And here we are 50 something years later, and they're, you know, signing peace agreements with Israel. So we have to be able to believe that people, individuals, but also the collective people can change. 
Right. I think it was Eli Wiesel who said, the real teaching of the Torah is not that we can begin, but that we can begin again. What a beautiful way to, and I like that. Absolutely. Well, Rabbi Bookdahl, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation and about all that you do and are famous for in, in leading American Jewry to a better and better place. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.